find Hosea again. I'm going to get a couple of folks to pass out study guides. Michael, would you get this side? Hosea, our second uh, lesson, going through the book of Hosea. Quick summary, what's going on in Hosea? What did you learn last week? <laughs> Local preacher, Mary's town hooker, right? That's literally what the book is about. I'm serious. It's kind of a, a crude way of putting it, but that is what the book of Hosea is about. And that marriage was to be a demonstration of what? God's, pe God's people being unfaithful to Him. Uh, the analogy of Hosea being like God who faithfully pursues his wife, his Aryan straying wife, and Gomer, the straying wife, going after other lovers, is, is like God's people that despite God's blessing on them and his covenant with them, uh, God's people often seek other ways. And uh, so that's, that's what the whole book is about, demonstrating God's pursuit for his bride, his people. And uh, mostly the words are addressed to Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, remember, Israel split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, after Rehoboam came to the throne, Solomon's son. And uh, most of the words of Hosea are directed, uh, by and large, at Israel. But also Judah is included. And many of the future promises that you find in the book of Hosea apply uh, to Judah after they come back from the Babylonian exile. We know that eventually Israel will be destroyed in 722, the Assyrians come in and wipe out the ten northern tribes and scatter them and then bring other peoples in to intermarry with the people who remained and they became the Samaritans that the Jews despised in New Testament times. Probably Hosea's ministry is over by 722 because we have no mention of the northern kingdom being destroyed, which probably we would if he were still carrying out his prophetic office. Hope you have your study guide from last week and hang on to that. That'll, that'll help you. Well, let's pick up uh, tonight in uh, chapter 2, and we're looking at words of warning and words of hope. He says, Call your brothers, my people, and your sisters compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it, it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, <clears throat> and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the bells, to which she burned incense. 
She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the day and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lu, uh, Lo Ruhamai. Uh, I will say to Lo Ami, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Now, folks, I want you to notice the way chapter 2 begins right away. And it begins by uh, Hosea giving instructions to his children, the children that we met back in chapter 1. And what is he doing? He's pleading with his children that... uh, that they would get their mother to come back home. Uh, Most mothers have a very strong maternal sense about them. And so Hosea is capitalizing on this, getting the kids involved, begging their mother to come back home. Now I want you to imagine the painful scene of a father telling his kids to go get their mother to come home. She's been a prostitute and is carrying on in that. And the kids are pleading with their mom to please turn away from that and come back home to them. You know, maybe on one level they're saying, Mom, Dad's cooking stinks. (laughs) You know, and he doesn't have our clothes ready when we go to school. But in all seriousness, they're involved in this pleading for her to come back home. Now the image here, of course, is for individual Israelites to plead with their fellow Israelites that it is high time for them to return to the Lord. And so by way of parallel, you have some common sense Israelites who have not turned their backs on God, and they're trying to speak to their fellow countrymen. Uh, These are Israelites who are witnessing what sin has done to the nation, and they want to see the nation come back to the Lord. You know, the scripture says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You know, there's some verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14 that carry great promise if a nation will come back to the Lord. What's 2 Chronicles 7.14 say? Does anybody remember? If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, Turn from their sins and seek my face. Then I'll heal their land. Right? A great promise to a nation. Uh, So that's presumably sort of similar to what some of the Israelites here are doing with their fellow Israelites. They're pleading for them to come back to the Lord. Come back home to the Lord. Return to the Lord so that there can be a new day, a restored day. What I want you to see tonight is God's discipline and wooing that are intended to call his people back into a faithful relationship with him. And what I want you to see first of all tonight is tough love. Tough love on Hosea's part symbolizing God's judgment and discipline. 
What they are doing is killing the nation. And what they're doing is not only killing the nation, but what they're doing is going to invite God's judgment on them. And this is exactly what Hosea is saying God's going to do. In an act of divine discipline, God is going to judge his people. Now, why is it that God exercises discipline on his people? Because he loves them. Because he loves them, exactly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, talks about the Lord's discipline to those who are his. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you're without the Lord's discipline, it's because you're illegitimate children. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about how even earthly fathers, they correct, they discipline their children. That's a, son, a sign of sonship. You discipline your own kids, at least parents and teachers used to anyway, right? The other night at staff Christmas party, Dina Jones was telling us what she faces now as a teacher. Wow. So sad. And teachers today know the administration. Many of them in the administration are not going to have a teacher's back. And then the parents are going to be all up in the face of the teacher, threatening a lawsuit. So administration today is just caving in on just about all fronts. And it's not the way it used to be at all. Uh, same in the home. Kids without discipline. And again, not the way it used to be. And who's going to pay the price in the long run? The kids are. But for now, they know they're not going to be disciplined. We know discipline, we know what it is intended to do and what it is designed to do. It's actually an act of love on the part of a parent towards a child or a teacher towards a child, to teach them the right way. The book of Proverbs says, if a father will not discipline his son, it's a sign that he hates his son. He despises his son because he will not correct him. He will not discipline him. And so Hosea is promising them that if they do not return, they're going to suffer God's discipline. And it's going to come by way of avenue of God's judgment. And so from verses 3 to 13, this is the image that we have. God is going to withhold blessings and take back blessings. In verse 3, when God says he will strip her naked and expose her and make her like a desert, what's being communicated here is that God is going to bring a curse on the land. In passages like Deuteronomy chapter 8, for example, and many other places, God warns what will happen if his people forget him. Uh, in fact, I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and, and read that chapter along with me. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beginning there in verse 1, listen to what Moses says. Mo Moses is... Uh, Reminding the children of Israel what they are to do as they are getting ready to enter into the promised land. They're not in the promised land yet. They're fixing the crossover into the promised land. Uh, Moses, of course, will, will be dead. Joshua will be leading them. But Moses is reminding them of what they've got to be careful to do. He says, carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years of the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources, 
flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, and where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you can mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I've given you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say yourself to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord your God gives you power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant that he uh, swore to your fathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. And I trust after last Wednesday night, you did what I asked you to do and went home and, and uh, read from Deuteronomy chapter 28. That if they forgot God and didn't keep their end of the covenant, the curses he would bring on the land. Blessings on the land if they would keep his covenant. Curses if they would not. And so they've not kept their end of the covenant. And so God is promising through Hosea that he is going to strip them naked. The imagery of Hosea and Gomer, but this time applied to his people, that he's going to make the land like a desert and he's going to bring a curse on the land where they will thirst. The people have not only been forgetting God, but they've been crediting Baal. Now, actually, it would be ba Baal, but, you know, we don't say that. That's harder to say. Baal, it's easier. <laughs> they've been crediting Baal with the fertility of the land. God had blessed their land. God has given them everything that they have, and they're giving credit to a false Canaanite God who is no God at all. Baal is just a worthless idol. But they've actually forgotten God, and they're giving Baal credit for everything. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But what I want you to see next is Gomer's blindness. Gomer's blindness. Look at verse 5 and verse 8. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who gave me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Look over at verse 8. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. What Gomer has done is take from her husband Hosea and then attribute her material possessions and gifts as being pay and provision from her many lovers. Taking what her husband has given her and giving credit to her many lovers. He's provided a home for her, and yet she turns to her other lovers. And this is exactly what Israel is doing. Israel is taking blessings from God and attributing those blessings to Baal. And, and you know what? What a shock it must be to God when we take good from his hand and we don't give him credit. Folks, that is sheer blindness on our part. Think of what God gives to people in general. He gives what theologians call common grace. This is on the most basic level. 
where, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And who experiences this? The whole entire world. Everybody. Whether people know God or not, God showers people with goodness, just provision that we woke up to this morning with the sunrise and a beautiful day. Now, what if we got what we deserved? Just think about this in nature. What if we got what we deserved? There would be droughts everywhere all the time, starvation, famine, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, etc., etc. What I'm saying is that if God used nature to give us what we deserve, the earth would be in a state of perpetual chaos. The fact that the earth's weather even is stable for the most part is a sign of his grace. And then on top of common grace, there's more specific grace. Turn over to James 1.17 with me for a moment. James 1.17. What's James say there? He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And verse 18 goes on to say, By his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Every good and perfect gift you have comes from God. And then as a specific example of a good and perfect gift, in fact, the best gift of all, if you're saved, where'd your salvation come from? It came from God. It came from God. But then what do so many people do? We live as though we either acquired things ourselves or we might attribute it to something else. Somebody says, I earned it myself. Well, you may have, but who gave you good enough help to be able to work? Who provided a job? Who gave me the mental capacity to be able to do that job in the first place? You see, folks, we oftentimes fail to see the hand of God in all of those things. They were even attributing the grain, the wine, the crops to Baal. They're thinking Baal has blessed the land with rain so they can grow their crops and have a bountiful harvest. And all the while... It's God who has been bringing the different seasons, the sunshine and the rain, so they could have their harvest. But they've been given credit. They've been given their love and devotion and the, and the credit to someone else. This is what they're guilty of. And so what does God say he's going to do? He's going to expose them. And he's going to do this, he's going to withhold all of these blessings that the land needs in order to produce the harvest, and the land is going to end up parched and thirsty. If, if they want to credit Baal for what they have, God, the one who really gave it, is going to withhold it, and then they're going to see everything dry up, and then let them see what Baal's going to be able to do for them. Absolutely nothing. Well, third thing I want you to see, God's ultimate purposes. His ultimate purposes. Read with me again. I know we read it a moment ago, but pick up in verse 6, read down through verse 13. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for it was better for me uh, than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover her nakedness, 
Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket, and the wild animals will eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, folks, the discipline and judgment coming from God is to wake his people up and get them to open their eyes to what they've been doing and, and come back to God. Now, what we have here in chapter 2 is like a man, this is a legal scenario being played out like it was in ancient times. A, a man gathering the elders together at the city gate and he has a written proclamation of divorce against his wife, and he's laying out all of the charges. That's the image here. God is laying out all of the charges against his people. And he's telling them what he's no longer going to do and what he is going to do. And like I said under the first point, it's discipline and judgment. It's tough love. God's going to show tough love. He's had it. He's had enough of Israel doing what they've done. They have prospered under Jeroboam II. They're living in a very prosperous land where they're comfortable. They're so comfortable and have everything they need and much of what they want. They've grown complacent and apathetic. What they've done is they've used all of their wealth in the wrong ways. And so God's going to strip everything away. But I want you to see what his ultimate purpose is. His ultimate purpose is that he's not going to divorce his people permanently. The, the, the discipline isn't intended to only be punitive, but there's a restoration element in it. And that's the ultimate design of it. In verses 14 to 23, this theme of restoration becomes clear. He says, therefore I'm going to persuade her, lead her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground, I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky. It will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself. And I will have compassion on Lo-Ruhamah. Uh, Lo I will say to Lo-Ami, you're my people. And he will say, you are my God. So the last half of the chapter, the theme of restoration becomes so clear. The first half of the chapter it's discipline and judgment. God's going to expose them and strip everything away to wake them up. The purpose is so it will wake them up and then he promises to restore them to do a fresh work in them. 
It's just like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29.11. What did Jeremiah, uh, or what did God say through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.11? You remember? I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's what's being promised here. Now, we know that God did this initially with Judah after the exile. He brought them back and replanted them in the land. Just read the book of Nehemiah, for example, to see this. We know 50,000 came back after the exile. They've been scattered. Only 50,000 came back, but 50,000 did, in fact, return. And what did they do? They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the wall around the city. They rebuilt their homes, and they rebuilt the temple. And so God did restore them. And by the way, the exile did cure them for the most part of their love of idols. He put them in a land of idols, the Babylonians, to the point that they got sick of it. And they grew to understand that it was their idolatry that got them in the mess they were in. And so for the most part, God cured them of idolatry. After the exile, idolatry was never as prominent in the land as it had been before. God promises here that the Valley of Achor will instead become a door or a gateway of hope. You remember the Valley of Achor, right? Remember what happened there? It's when Achan took spoils of war from Jericho. When Joshua first led them in and they attacked Jericho, they were, they were not to take anything. It all belonged to the Lord. And yet Achan took some of it. So when they went up against Ai, what did God do? They lost the war. They were defeated. God brought defeat on them and punished them because they disobeyed him and taken spoils from Jericho. So God had Achan exposed and his whole family along with himself, they were put to death. And that area became known as the Valley of Achor, a place of bitterness and defeat. That's what it became known for. That's what it stood for. What happened to them there at Ai when they were humbled and defeated and the bitterness that took place from that? But God is promising that the very place of bitterness and defeat is going to become a gateway of hope. He will once again discipline his people in the exile, but he's going to bring them back and he's going to replant them in their land again. And he's going to say, you are my people. And they're going to say, you are my God. Now, many scholars at this point uh, will say that this event and the aftermath <clears throat> coming back after the Babylonian exile, can't be the ultimate fulfillment of these promises in chapter 2. It seems clear that something greater is being promised. For example, look at verses 18 and, and 19 20 again. On that day I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the creatures that crawl on the ground, I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. Did that happen after the Babylonian exile was over and they came back to the land? No. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. So it sounds like some even greater peace is being forecast here. 
The ultimate fulfillment is when, either in the millennium or the new heavens and the new earth, depend, depending on how you interpret those millennium passages, some referring to a thousand-year ideal period, or others who take those passages to be indicative of the new age, the eternal state. We're not going to argue that tonight. But both sides agree on the result. Uh, just whether it's a thousand years on earth or whether those passages actually point to eternity, and, you know, it, it, it's a tough question. It's a tough question, but the result's the same. Even though it's an interpretive challenge, the result's the same. There's coming a day when all things are going to be at peace. As the prophets say elsewhere, where the swords are going to be beat into plowshares and there will be war no more. Where the lion uh, and the lamb lay down together. Where there's peace and no fear, no bloodshed. There's coming a new day. And that seems to be what verses 18 and following are referring to in the ultimate sense. In the ultimate sense. God will forever erase the reproach of his people and turn their wayward hearts back to himself. Now folks, you remember an illustration I used on Sunday mornings a couple of months ago. A challenge you have when you're reading the prophets related to things like this. And I used the illustration of leaving home here and driving up to the mountain. Does anybody remember that illustration about the mountain peaks? What was that? Exactly. You're driving to the mountains, and when you first see the mountain peaks, you might be looking at two. And I mean, they seem like they're right up against one another. But when you actually get there, there might be a 10-mile wide valley that separates those two mountain peaks, right? From a distance, they looked right together, but not so when you get there. That's how prophecy is in the Old Testament. The prophet may be talking about multiple events happening that seem like they're all together. But at one point, he may be talking about Judah being brought back to the land after the exile, but in the next point, actually, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about a final restoration one day. It also happens when the prophets were telling about the coming of the Messiah. They may speak of his coming in one verse, and that one verse is referring to his first advent when he was born in Bethlehem. But in the next verse, that verse may be speaking of when he comes again in his second coming that's still yet future even from our perspective today. But the prophet, when he was talking about the coming of the Messiah, put those things right up together. Scholars see that type of thing here in Hosea. There's a closer up fulfillment when they come back after the exile, but then there's elements in these verses that make it clear that something else, something even better, is in mind in the distant future. And that's what we see here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Paul's going to give an image right off of the pages of horticulture. Romans 11. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, 
They've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. I ask them, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches, that is, the natural branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Folks, what do we see there? Again, I, going back to Isaiah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here about that ultimate fulfillment. Not, not when they came back after the exile, but the ultimate fulfillment. What's the scripture telling us? We see that God is not done with Israel. Gentiles are invited into God's family. That's happening now. Also, some Jews are coming to Christ, even now as well. But Paul seems to be saying at some point, even more Jews are going to come to Christ. And the one tree, the one cultivated olive tree representing 
God's children, God's family. It was primarily made, made up of Jews, but now Gentiles, the wild branches, are being grafted in, and through the ages, at some point greater in the future, more of the natural branches, the Jews will come to Christ and they'll be grafted back in. And so this olive tree of Jews and Gentiles will make up God's family. There's not two trees, one tree for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. It's one tree, but a tree of natural branches and wild branches grafted in. And the fullness of this tree happening. That seems to be that far away picture that Hosea is talking about. When that happens one day. As verse 19 says back in Hosea 2. God will then in that day, he'll do what? He'll take them to be his wife. For how long? Forever. Forever. Now folks, the wonderful thing is stated in chapter 3. I want to get chapter 3 in tonight real quick. It's short. Because really chapters 1 through 3 make up a unit. <clears throat> chapter 3 shows how all of this happens. Look at chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is unadulterous, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. That would be their offerings to, to Baal and their idols. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. I said to her, You are to live with me Many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with all to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So, what do we see in this chapter? Hosea, Hosea is to go back, is, is to go and buy Gomer back at a great price. She has sold herself in prostitution and apparently now she's even become some other man's slave. And so there's a price on her head that's got to be paid. And Hosea is told to go and buy her back. There's a redemption price, a price to pay so she can come back home with Hosea. Hosea goes and he buys her back. He probably had to outbid other bidders even maybe. And again, it's an illustration of what God does. He shouldn't have to buy his people back. They should have never strayed in the first place, but they did. And in God's grace, God buys them back. Taking the long view again, we know how he's done this in the ultimate way. He sent a son. He shouldn't have had to have done this. After all, he put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, in a perfect world. But we know the story. They sinned, and sin came upon the whole world. But God in Christ has redeemed us. And we were not redeemed with silver and gold. We were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So what becomes clear in all of this is that God wants us with Him forever. And if that's going to be done, He's going to have to be the one to do it. And that's what He did in and through Christ. He paid the redemption price so that his wayward wife, his people, could be with him forever. 
some lessons from this. Sin invites God's discipline. If you're not disciplined in some way, it is because you are not God's child. Second, God is able to carry the discipline as far as He needs to in order to accomplish His purposes. God is able to carry the discipline as far as He needs to in order to accomplish His purposes. Third, God's people are often blind to God's provisions and His grace. Fourth, God's discipline is not simply punitive, but restorative. Not simply punitive, but restorative. And then lastly, there is coming a great day of hope and peace for the people of God. A day when transgression's aftermath is removed forever. Now, I had to hurry, because we need to be in our prayer time. But did you get it all? Any questions or comments? Anybody? Go back and read Hosea 1 through 3 together in one sitting. When Hosea is broken down as a book and scholars break it down, there, there's really only two main divisions. 1 through 3 and then 4 through 14. And then further breakdown, subgroupings from there. But really the book breaks down into just two main sections the longer section being chapters 4 and 14. So go back and read 1 through 3 together in one sitting. Maybe in a couple of different translations too. Okay? Good stuff in Hosea, isn't it? Good stuff here. <laughs>